HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons, third-generation cure masters producing the country's best dry-cured and aged hams, bacon, and sausage. For more information, visit surreyfarms.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Did you have your Wheaties this morning? If not... What did you eat for breakfast? And do you know where it came from and when it all started? We're going to find out today on A Taste of the Past. Hi, I'm Linda Palaccio, your host on A Taste of the Past here on Heritage Radio Network. It is a member-supported network and the cutting-edge source for all the information on food, uh, sustainability, gardening practices, farm practices, cooking issues, and of course, culinary history. And I mentioned Wheaties and breakfast Um one of our hosts, Dave Arnold, the host of Cooking Issues and the founder of the Museum of Food and Drink, recently held a, I guess, a happening, if you will. He constructed and found an, an old cereal gun. You ever wonder how they got puffed wheat and puffed rice? Well, Dave figured it out, and he has this beautiful, huge contraption. And it publicly fired off the gun and popped all kinds of grains and showed how cereal actually was made in that puffed manner, uh, for those who didn't know. Quite an event. And it explained a lot to people about how they got that cereal in their bowl. But before there was cereal in their bowl, there were all kinds of breakfasts all around the world, all throughout the ages. And... An author has written a wonderful book about it called Breakfast History, and she is Heather Arndt Anderson. Heather is an author, which well, she was formerly a plant ecologist, and she's an author and, and historian. And Heather, I welcome you to the show, and this is most interesting. Thanks, Linda. Thanks for having me on. Um, the the book um, really covers <laughs> covers quite a bit of time and territory, and I find, of course, the ancient history uh, myself, I find that really very intriguing. And yet again, 
it's not all that different, is it? No, it's not. Um, That was one of the most uh, fascinating discoveries I made while I was doing research for this book, is that the more things change, the more they stay the same. Hmm. And uh, largely, (laughs) foods have not changed at all in thousands of years. Well, in in like a few thousand words, can you give us sort of a condensed chronology of, um, as far as we know from, from written record, like how, what, how breakfast has evolved? Well, um, beginning in the Paleolithic era, humans started um, processing grains, and I hate to make a jab at all of my friends who are on the paleo diet, but sorry, friends, uh, (laughs) humans have been eating processed and (laughs) grains and baked goods since the Paleolithic era um, based on modern archaeological evidence um, that has been substantiated. Um, So for thousands of years, things pretty much stay the same. In the classical antiquity, um, people were still eating porridges, not so much for breakfast. There was a lot of flatbreads, olives, figs, um, grapes, that kind of thing, uh, and that still sort of goes on in the Mediterranean and the Middle East today. Well, so just and, and just I'm sorry, just to to interrupt because we, you know, think about the word breakfast. I mean, they're breaking the fast. Obviously, you know, you sleep for however many hours, and you have to break the fast to get energy for the following day. Um, and this this word has pretty much been uh, in many different languages the similar kind of meaning, correct? Yeah, and you know, I'm not sure. If cultures that uh, had were later to develop written language, if they had any specific concept of breaking the fast or if they just didn't give much thought to it. They woke up, they were hungry, they had work to do, and so they ate something mm-hmm. and didn't spend much time worrying about it. Um, the Greeks and Romans, of course, worried and thought about everything and <laughs> spent lots of time um, waxing poetic about every single... Philosophizing. Uh, <laughs> So um, I'm not sure if if everyone spent as much time thinking about it as um, Westerners did. So yeah, that was um, outside the scope. So you talked about grains. Grains had been consumed, and in fact, um, you mentioned that that there was more. Um, nothing had quite the effect on the evolution of the human as the domestication of grains. Yeah, and that's a point that has been driven home by uh, lots of authors. But um, as Harold McGee said, it is um, difficult to overestimate the importance of uh, grain on human evolution. Um, And that is a paraphrasing of what he said. But once humans domesticated grains, um, that was a pretty big game changer. We uh, had a little bit more time to... Uh, develop art and culture, basically. So everything that is good about humans or everything that makes us human is really because of grain, in my opinion. Mm. Um, Cereal is the basis of all of humanity. Um, (laughs) uh, We, the sedentism really did give us a chance to spend time on other endeavors, things besides surviving. And, um, and that had, you know, wide sweeping effects on uh, all of, all of culture and humanity. Hmm. Uh, what so? What else aside from grain domestication uh, really affected the that first meal of breakfast, and what was eaten? Well, I think that uh, there are lots of factors, but I think that convenience is really one of the major players because 
people didn't have time, especially before electricity, um, people didn't have time to spend on preparing uh, lengthy and elaborate foods. Um, people with household staffs later, of course, had people to do cooking for them. But people needed to be able to eat something that was fast. And so that's why we see a lot of things like cheeses and fruits and breads or leftover meats from the, the, the dinner the night before. Um, it was really just a grab-and-go kind of meal. And that is uh, a trend that has maintained through modern times. People don't really have time to spend cooking in the morning or they don't want to, um, especially when you have just a little bit of daylight to get your work done. Mm-hmm. Well, you um, you mentioned olives, and that made me, of course, think of uh, ancient Roman times. And we know that there's written evidence from Pliny and, and others that breakfast was consumed in antiquity. What would have been, uh, what do we know was eaten or consumed for that first meal in ancient Roman times? Well, um, there was a dish, it was, you know, Ariston was the the name of the morning meal, but um, another word for it was akratisma, and that came after the the word akratos, which is the, the morning wine. And normally the ancient Greeks and Romans too, drank their wine diluted, and it was considered very boorish to drink straight, undiluted wine. But the the very first meal of the day could uh, was bread dipped in the undiluted wine, and it was considered by some to be a sort of um, grace for the day so as an offering to the gods. Um, it wasn't really meant to be drunk, but typically uh, bread dipped in wine was a pretty common thing to start your day with back in Pliny's day. And then, um, like I said before, the olives and figs and, and other flatbreads. But yeah, usually it was just a, nothing more than a simple bread dunked in wine. Hmm. Well, it's interesting because they um, gruel and pour it back to grains again. Can't get away from those grains. And it's funny because ancient, <laughs> ancient grains have, you know, are, are so uh, much in the news today and, and kind of back in fashion. But gruels and porridges and, and a pulse, of course, a Roman time they would have had like a called a pulse. They appear in just about every culture throughout time. Yeah, they really do. And at every meal also until... You know, we get to today's times where porridge is not really eaten for dinner. Hmm. But, um, yeah, grain, gruels, and even gruels made of um, legumes and pulses um, are eaten through, throughout the world for breakfast when um, varying consistencies and varying flavor profiles. Um, in Africa, they, they have a lot of millet and maize-based porridges that probably haven't been changed much in millennia. Um, in Eastern Europe, they have other um, kinds of porridges made with barley, and um, you know, throughout Europe, Northern Europe, there are uh, rye and oat porridges and wheat porridges, oatmeal, of course, and being Scottish, it's almost a Scottish national dish. Right. Um, that. <laughs> yeah, well, in, oats. in your um, in your research, I mean, you did. Uh, cover some, as you say, some of the, the practices in Africa and, and certainly Asia. Um, and well, tell us a little bit about the kanjis and, and, and the Asian um, culture. Oh, kanjis and jukes are really interesting because um, 
Well, they still eat them today. And in different parts of Asia, you can get different ingredients. Um, you know, in China, you might get a preserved egg um, to add to your, or a little bit of fish to add to your juke. And then in Vietnam, you get um, a little bit more offal. Um, but, uh, yeah, and depending on the region, you also have varying degrees of, um, I'm not sure what, viscosity, I guess is the word. Mm. If the more broken up the rice grains are, um, the more creamy the, the juke will be, more custardy. Um, and then there are also different, um, gosh, I wish I had a better way to explain this. The, the better the cook was, cons- I mean, the way the Chinese considered, if your cook was really good, then the grains would not be all mushy. They would, they would be perfectly cooked. Um, and I can't, I lack the, the language to describe it because it's in Chinese. But, um, yeah, and in Southeast Asia, they, they stick to rice. But in China, they will also use grains like millet and wheat, um, depending on how far north they are. Mm-hmm. In Japan, they have other uh, kanjis, like a rice porridge, um, that have written mention that go back centuries. Interesting. Um, and... Uh, as I said, you, you cover Africa, and of course, then you've just you know told us some about the Asian uh, experiences with breakfast. But you really do focus mostly on the Western world. Is there a reason for that? Did it, were there more changes? What? Um, well, the focus is on um, the U.S. and England by proxy um, because that the subject is just too large to cover the whole world in the amount of that I am obsessed with, but also <laughs> the, scope, just the scope of the series was really um, intended to be for the West. Uh-huh. And, um, yeah. Uh, well, s- certainly certain things happened throughout history that, that altered breakfast as we know it, religion being one of them. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, well, of course, religion has had wide-sweeping effects on many parts of Western culture. Um, I guess that that's uh, stating the obvious. But early on in the Middle Ages, breakfast was considered um, by some members of the, the Catholic Church to be a type of gluttony because it was eating too soon after one's prior meal. So um, there were six different kinds of gluttony one could commit, and, and breakfast was um, closest to the one of eating too soon. And uh, certain people still ate anyways because they really did need the calories um, to do their work or because they were, you know, infants. You can't starve an infant in the morning, um, the elderly and the infirm. Um, but religion had kind of a stronghold on uh, the acceptability of eating breakfast for a long time. And uh, then in the 16th or the 17th century, when Europe got a taste of chocolate, um, the Catholic Church actually made a concession to allow chocolate during um, the fasting periods um, by saying that liquid does not break the fast, and so people were able to enjoy chocolate when they were supposed to be fasting. And then again, um, so after things settled down a little bit and breakfast is sort of back on the docket for most people, things get kind of kooky again in the, uh, the 19th century with the Seventh-day Adventists. And um, I don't spend a lot of time talking about the Seventh-day Adventist Church in the book just because, you know, I, it was a rabbit hole that I, I didn't want to spend too much time on. Yeah. But um, with the players like Sylvester Graham and James Caleb Jackson and those guys that were really the, 
the forerunners of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, we get the serials kind of making a big comeback. Um, Sylvester Graham, of course, is the, the father of the Graham flour, Graham crackers. Um, he invented some cereals or ways of eating cereal. And James Caleb Jackson invented the first sort of ready-made cereal. Um, unfortunately, it was really hard, and um, people called it wheat rocks because you'd have to soak it overnight <laughs> before you could even chew it. And, um, and so the convenience factor was pretty much nil in a product you had to soak overnight. Um, and then, so the Kellogg boys come into play. They are also, of course, um, pretty famous Seventh-day Adventists. And the Seventh-day Adventist church was invented in Battle Creek, Michigan, which is where um, the Kellogg uh, brothers were living and had their sanitarium. Um, is it okay if I jump right into Abs- talking about the Kellogg? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so the the Kellogg brothers had this sanitarium in Battle Creek, and they were looking for a product that would be easy to chew because, you know, Jackson had invented the granula, but it was hard as a rock. And since a lot of their clientele were sort of, um, they were the social elite, but a lot of them were also sort of on the older age um, bracket. And so they had a hard time chewing those really dense uh, wheat and gram products. So the Jackson guys were cooking something up and they got called away from the kitchen for a minute. When they got back, their pot of mush had gone stale and dried out, but there was so much product on the stove, they didn't want to just throw it away. So they decided to try rolling it through some steel rollers to get some kind of sheets that, so they could cut it up and use it. And it flaked up because it was just so dry. And so they served it to their clientele anyways. <laughs> and people loved it. They just, and uh, yeah, fortunately, the people really liked it. Um, later, of course, things got a little sticky between the brothers because um, corn, you know, goes rancid pretty quickly. It's high fat content. And so the, the younger Kellogg, Will, decided to start adding sugar. And, of course, John Harvey Kellogg, that was anathema to everything he stood for. And Against the health he, movement, uh, right? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, these health-crazed Seventh-day Adventists, um, really changed the breakfast table. They were anti-meat, anti-caffeine, anti-you know other human pleasures. <laughs> um, but they really promoted this grain-heavy vegetarian diet, and I think that that had a really big impact on the American breakfast table. And I think that that is responsible for um, breakfast cereal being the the major player of the breakfast table today. Indeed, I mean, what would you know? What would half of the the population do without their box of of Wheaties or you know, cornflakes or, or, or uh, puffed rice? Um, well, you mentioned corn, in fact, and and uh, maize and the and the planting of corn in uh, by the the Mesoamerican Indians. I mean, that whole and the whole um, science of learning how to to turn corn into hominy and and frying it. I mean, that changed. That changed the the world of breakfast tremendously right there. Oh, yeah. Um, the Mesoamericans had been tinkering with the genome of corn for millennia, um, starting with the nubby little grass, Teosinte. And I can't imagine what would um, inspire somebody to take this spiny little ugly grass and say, hey, I wonder if I can eat that. But 
I guess, um, <laughs> desperate <laughs> times call for desperate measures. But yeah, over the over time, they were able to get a a grass with a really big flower, basically, and uh, develop corn. And um, I'm not sure how uh, the nixtamalization process was developed, but thank goodness it was because it really free it frees up the niacin in the corn grain, which um, prevents pellagra and other um, nutritional deficiency diseases. Um, and the technique was, uh, of course, it was developed in Mesoamerica, but it came north all the way to uh, North America, to the Great Plains Indians, um, who still use a similar process today using wood ash to wash the, um, the indigestible hull off of the outside of the corn grain. Right, and then... right. And then, and that frees up the the nutrients, as you said. Right, and um, so with the maize products like uh, masa and stuff, we have tamales, which are not a breakfast food, but the corn mushes and corn meals uh, became a real staple of American Indians and then also early American settlers. Right, and then and from there, then we get things like hoe cakes and Johnny cakes and things that we even that we eat today still. So. Yeah, grits. All right. What about uh, the appearance of dairy uh, and eggs, you know, yogurts, cheese? Well, you mentioned, actually, you mentioned some cheeses before, but other dairy and eggs in uh, on the breakfast table. Well, dairy and eggs have been eaten, you know, since the Neolithic. I mean, they're, they've always been foods for humans. Um, dairy products, I think, because dairy and eggs, um, are, well, dairy specifically, you know, you milk a cow in the morning, and so it makes sense to have some dairy in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, and cheeses are a product that can just be kept around. You don't need to do much to prepare them. And uh, in a lot of parts of Northern Europe, they still do just eat a slice of bread with cheese, um, like an open-faced sandwich. Yogurt was developed in Central Asia, um, probably by accident, just like all good things, uh, when some milk was being kept in uh, probably like a goat skin and bacteria just curdled the milk into a, a nice product. Um, and so, yeah, I think that those are just staple foods that they're a good source of protein. They're um, inexpensive and easy. Uh, once you have, you know, cheese, you, you don't have to do anything. It's just you slice it off or break it off and have it with bread and, and mm. there you are. Mm. Um, and eggs, too, um, since chickens are so easy to keep, um, nowadays you can get eggs year-round, but, you know, back in the day you only got eggs from about spring until fall, and then chickens take a break in the winter. They stop laying. But uh, chickens or uh, eggs are a pretty reliable source of protein. And uh, so I think that, well, gosh, in the Renaissance, egg cookery was really pretty a big deal. I mean, they found new spectacular ways to cook eggs. There were hundreds of ways to cook eggs in the Renaissance. But um, a lot of times you could just throw them in the embers of your dying fire, and then they'd be cooked the next morning. And that was a really convenient way to have eggs for hmm. breakfast. And, and then, so, and we do rele- we do sort of relegate them to the breakfast table. Well, we're going to talk more about this and about some popular breakfast drinks when we come back after a short break. I want to put you in a big white cloud, push you around. Take a good look. This song is called 10,000 Breakfasts with You by Cookies. 
and you're listening to A Taste of the Past on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Today's program has been brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards and Sons. Edwards Suriano hams are aged to perfection for no less than 400 days and hickory smoked to achieve a deep mahogany color. The Edwards name is well known for its world-class aged and cured meats. Their exclusive curing and aging recipe produces a unique flavor profile that enhances the quality characteristics of Berkshire pork. Optimum amounts of pure white fat marbling contribute to a flavor that's a delicate, perfect balance between sweet and salty. For more information, visit www.surreyfarms.com. We're back on A Taste of the Past, and I'm speaking with Heather Arndt Anderson, the author of Breakfast, A History. And Heather, um, you mentioned um, something about wine, the consumption of wine in, in ancient Roman times, but the consumption of alcohol continued as far as a, a breakfast drink for quite some time until until other things came on the uh, onto the picture. Yeah, and even overlapping caffeinated beverages. Um, Benjamin Franklin complained that one of his uh, co-workers was having beer before breakfast, beer during the morning break, beer at lunch. Um, and uh, yeah, because of the, the poor water quality during the Middle Ages and uh, and just beyond that, early modern era. Uh, small beer, which was a, a diluted beer, just like the diluted wine of the ancient Greeks, was pretty much the beverage of choice for the breakfast table. Queen Elizabeth was a fan of, of ale and beer, <laughs> two separate mm-hmm. uh, beverages um, at the breakfast table, along with her oat cakes and beef. Um, and, of course, today we still have our breakfast cocktails, you know, People love their Bloody Marys. Bloody Marys, yes. Why? <laughs> a brunch wouldn't be complete without it, right? Um, well, the, and then um, tea came onto the onto the well, coffee first. Chocolate, right? What? What? How did? What? When did all that change? Well, okay. So in the sixth, late 16th century, early 17th century, uh, chocolate, tea, and coffee—just a little bit later—all um, became introduced to Europe from their various. Uh, sources of so chocolate comes from Mesoamerica, along with the New World foods like tomatoes, corn, and potatoes. Um, from Asia, we start getting China um, through trade, and then coffee makes its way from northern Euro- or northern Africa, Ethiopia. Um, so all of these wonderful beverages start showing up in Europe right around the same time, and I can't imagine how overjoyed the Europeans must have been to have all of these brand new delicious, energizing products just showing up um, in the markets. And, of course, it's not that everybody could afford it. It was still for the upper crust for about 100 years. But it was such a game changer. Um, You know, caffeine obviously has the opposite effects as uh, alcohol on one's productivity. And so I think that Mm -hmm. there just must have been a wide-sweeping effect on the way uh, Europeans conducted their their business. Right. For a while, the, ca- the caffeinated beverages were for the afternoon tea. It was more like a, a treat. But um, by the 18th century, they really were just a 
solid part of the morning. Yeah, well, and, and I think it's safe to say that that caffeine outweighs alcohol as a breakfast drink today. <laughs> it's it's, it's oh, held its own. Right. Um, what about the? Uh, did you notice any any specific differences? I know in different today in, in well in America even that it's a matter of taste, but throughout different cultures in your research, did you find a real difference between savory and sweet as far as preferred breakfasts? Yeah, I think that it is really a cultural difference. Um, in America, you get more mixing of sweet and savory than I think that you'd see anywhere else in the world. Um, in Western Europe, like France and Italy, you, you get things like uh, just little breads with maybe some jam or chocolate. Northern Europe, you get more bread with cheese and meat. And then Eastern Europe, it's you know the same kind of thing, the meats and cheeses and pickles. And uh, I don't think in Asia anyone would consider a sweet besides fruit to be a, a, something that you would eat for breakfast. But in America, we get these um, kind of bonkers combinations like chicken and waffles with syrup on them. Um, a lot of the honey with your meat. Um, and I guess that sort of harkens back to the medieval era when they were using sweet spices with and honeys with um, their savory dishes. But... Uh, for breakfast, it seems a uniquely American uh, thing to have sweet and savory together. Hmm. And, and and most I, any I culture any right right no neither do I. <laughs> um, and <laughs> it's interesting because we, you know, not in our culture so much we don't find um, uh, like a big bowl of a savory stew being served. I mean, well, no. unless it's leftovers from you know, and you're hungry and you open your refrigerator and there's that uh, you know leftovers too, but. Generally, that maybe would be saved for a, a later meal, but it's not uncommon in other cultures, I'm sure. Right. That's the other sort of uniquely American phenomenon is to um, not have soup or stew for breakfast. Uh, and even just North America, I mean, in Mexico, they have menudo. That's a very um, common breakfast. And that menudo takes a long time to cook. And so mm. I think that it, it has to be a leftover kind of food or put the pot on um, the night before and, and there you have it yeah yeah hmm. well certainly um the the uh practice of taking breakfast out coming with boarding you know uh you mentioned trade the growth of trade so then all of a sudden there were these uh traveling salesmen or you know people traveling for work so there were boarding houses right b&b's the practice of taking breakfast out became um an industry in itself. Yeah, even before the Industrial Revolution introduced the uh, the middle class and the sort of the work day as we have it today, where you get up at a certain time, you go to work, and the work day starts at 9. Even before that, there were traveling breakfast sellers, like the in Burma, the Mohinga sellers who would sell you the catfish stew. Um, and there were breakfasts stalls in um, Victorian era in England, so you could get your little bread roll on your way to your own workspace. Um, and so taking breakfast on the go has, has been around for kind of a long time, and it, it really has um, maintained today. Um, there's, you know, the birth of the breakfast sandwiches and drive throughs in the 60s and 70s. Um, and eating breakfast in boarding houses and bed, bed and breakfasts uh, 
it, yeah, for guys who are, had to work away from home, um, especially out west in the frontier, uh, it was such an important um, industry for a lot of, of working women and also families who just needed extra income to open their homes to these uh, bachelors, these wayward guys who, who needed to have some breakfast before heading off to work for the day. Uh, well, certainly breakfast in in America has kind of morphed into the ultimate comfort food. And we have breakfast diners, waffle houses, and pancake houses. And truly it is a, a comfort food. You think of, you know, biscuits and gravy and pancakes and, mm. <laughs> <laughs> and You're making me hungry. I know. Well, in just <laughs> I, I posted a picture of, of waffles. I don't think it's something you might have had um, on our the on the networks uh, on the show page for this show. And we looked at it. We were sitting in the studio and looking at it, and all of us started to get hungry. I mean, who doesn't love <laughs> great breakfast food? Well, it is truly an intriguing read, a very interesting read too. And the book is again breakfast: a history by Heather Arndt Anderson. Heather, thank you so much for joining me today and sharing your information. Thank you, Linda. Again, you've been listening to A Taste of the Past on Heritage Radio Network, and I want to remind all of you once again that Heritage Radio Network is a member-supported network, and we hope that you will visit our homepage and consider joining if you like this program and many more. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes Store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.